Hi everyone and welcome back to the Panama podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Really great to have you all here again. And uh, I'm uh, delighted to welcome a new guest to the show, an author who's got an exciting new book out, which I'm really intrigued to uh, to read and to talk about uh, as we're recording. It hasn't been released yet, so um, not had a chance to read it yet, but it's on my pre-order list. So, um, yeah, welcome to the show, Kat Armas. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and chat with you. It's it's nice when you connect with folks online and then you're able to, you know, talk to them sort of in person. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've done it with a lot of people. Twitter seems to be quite good for connecting with yeah. people and authors and you know right. that kind of thing. So yeah. Um and tell us a bit about this book that you've written. Yeah, so it's called Abuelita Faith, uh, and that means just grandmother faith. Um, Abuela means grandmother in Spanish, but then in Spanish, we kind of put ita or ito at the end of words it's as a sort of term of endearment. Um, so folks like that, it's, you know, sort of like my little grandmother or, you know, that's like that would be the literal translation, um, but it's uh, just it's a term of endearment. And yeah, so I, um, I sort of write through the lens of an abuelita theology, um, which it's, a, it's not a very, um, you know, uh, how, how should I put this? It's not something like mujerista theology that has been written about a ton or has been, um, you know, explored a ton. You know, I stumbled upon abuelita theology um, just in seminary, I was doing research and it was in one little article and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, this really resonates with me. Um, our grandmothers for, for the Latinx culture and, and, and many cultures, which is, I think, why this book resonates with more than just Latinx people. But um, our grandmothers are sort of like the the matriarchal powerhouses of our families of who we are, you know, um, our grandmothers are the ones who, you know, raise children and do all the house duties and also have jobs, particularly if they're immigrant women, um, because, you know, they need to survive and, you know, all these things. And so, so many, um, of so many people in my community really resonated, excuse me, with this idea of just, you know, grandmother theology, like, yeah, my grandmother basically raised me, you know, everyone kind of says, um, and so I stumbled upon Awalita theology in this one little um, article. And then I was like, wait a minute, there has to be more about this. Like, what do you mean? It's just like a couple paragraphs. So I began doing more and more research. And, you know, here and there, several theologians were talking about it. But I thought, no, more needs to be said. Um, so that's when I began my journey of really, um, I don't like to say that I'm developing an Awalita theology because this isn't an academic book. But I do like to say that I'm exploring it and I'm, you know, sort of bringing more meat around it, you know, of what it is. Um, yeah, so I basically and, and so and the angle that I take is I, I love the Bible, particularly because it's just such a complicated book, you know, and it has been used and abused in so many ways. Um but also the Bible has been used by oppressed peoples across the globe to find strength and hope and in life, right? And so I like to sort of wrestle with that tension, like how have we been taught about the Bible and how have um, oppressed, marginalized, colonized people, you know, received it? How have they read it? Um, and so that's why I love 
sort of wrestling with scripture because I don't want to just give all the power to the oppressors, right? I want mm-hmm. um, to take back a lot of that power. And so I, I love just looking at scripture through decolonized or decolonial lenses. Um, I love looking. And so I part specifically in my book, I look at women in the Bible who are unnamed or overlooked. Um, and so women who like Rizba, for example, who she's just a quick character in second Samuel, you know, she, we kind of like, she's not really taught much in Sunday schools. I didn't learn about her even in seminary and, you know, old Testament classes or whatever. I didn't learn about her, but I stumbled upon her story one day and I thought, wait a minute, this is profound. You know, she protests for six months, the unjust murder of her children, you know, and and in my book, I I tie that to all the women um, who have been protesting, all the mothers who have been protesting the unjust murder of their black and brown sons, right? Um, And she's protesting, you know, she's doing this thing that we're talking so much about in our in our culture right now, you know, protests. um, And, and she does that. And when she protests, she gets uh, the attention of King David, and then that leads David to wrong to right some wrongs that had happened in the past. And then that leads God to send rain. There had been a famine for three years. So here we have this overlooked character who protests and then saves Israel. And we never really talk about her. Um, so I, I investigate women like that in the Bible, um, who I try and look at their stories through decolonized lenses. Um, yeah. And then I just connect that to my grandmother's story of immigration and, you know, her stories of, of survival and resistance and persistence and all those things. And also just women across history, um, you know, uh, whether it be women in, in empires and w- or women in, um, you know, specific countries who have been and I focus I try and focus obviously on Latin American countries, but who have been oppressed by dictators or whatever you want to call it. Um, I kind of go through their stories and say, look at what women have done throughout history. Um, Mm. So yeah, that's, I know that's a long winded response. Yeah, No, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, It makes me excited to read it. Uh, So what is your own ancestry and your own, um, and and obviously your grandmother and stuff, what's her story? Yeah, so um, my grandmother's Cuban, so I'm, you know, I would consider myself Cuban American. She immigrated to the United States um, in the mid 1960s, and this was after the Castro Revolution. I don't know if you've been following some of what's been happening in Cuba. It's been um, kind of, you know, all over the news the last few weeks or the last couple of weeks. But um, yeah, and it's, you know, it. Cuba, unfortunately, is such a hyper politicized country because of its connection to the US and how much, you know, we have just so much stuff that has happened. Um, And you can't really get a lot of information about Cuba or from Cuba without it being very biased and very either extremely left wing or extremely right wing, either pro, you know, Castro and the revolution or super anti, you know. Um, it's just very, it's hard because I, and, the, and I kind of r- write about this, a li- I wrote about this a little bit, you know, on Instagram as I've been reflecting on everything that's happening, but um, no one's ever cared about the Cuban people, right? And not the U.S. government, not the Cuban government. No one's cared about the Cuban people. They've been pawns in political games for centuries. Uh, in my book, I start, I, you know, I obviously I talk a lot about Cuba and 
Um, but I start all the way in the beginning when Columbus arrived on the island in 1492. That was the first island that Columbus arrived to. And I sort of start there and, and just how, you know, the, the history of colonization and then how Cuba has been used as a pawn, you know, uh, in the Cold War and and with the, you know, anti-communist this. And I mean, it's just been really, um, yeah, really, it's been a really tumultuous, it has a really tumultuous history. Um, and so anyway, my grandmother, she immigrated her and, and my the rest of my family, my mother and my um, aunt and uncle, they came here after the Castro Revolution in 1959, a few years after that. And that's also a very interesting thing because, you know, the Castro Revolution was a, a left wing movement and Cuba had been had been under right wing rule for a long time, you know, um, by U.S. backed dictators, you know, very right wing dictators. And then here comes Castro, you know, a socialist and just wanting to, you know, change things. And a lot of people were on his side were for him, you know, because he was promising a revolution, right? A, a, a revolution of the people. And Castro was a very complicated character um, for those reasons, because he was mm -hmm. promising a lot of things and, yeah. you know, and a lot of movements and a lot of people loved, you know, all the things that he was saying. But then now a lot of people are sort of wrestling, well, you know, what what led, you know, what happened in all of these years since 1959 where there's so much poverty, you know, the fall of the socialist countries and the end of the Cold War and all these things that caused um, just a lot of turmoil for the people. People went hungry, you know, they're still yeah. hungry and there's a lot of poverty. Um, so anyway, so my, a lot of people fled from Cuba to Miami, um, which is what my family did. And um, that's where I was raised. And I don't know if you've ever been to Miami, but it is a very Cuban city. I mean, right. yeah, everyone speaks Spanish, you know, I and, and that's part of my story is that I was part of the dominant culture in society for a long time because I was in a very Cuban area. And it wasn't until I left that I started wrestling with white supremacy and, and white dominant culture um, because I, I was raised Cuban, you know? So, yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting that, you know, often we're a product of where we live and until we go out of that space, we don't realize how different the world is. Right. And have to do that work. You know, you, you had to leave, uh, you had to leave Miami, Miami, and you had to leave Miami to realize what was going on right yeah start understanding that work i mean how did that what did that process look like for you the kind of de decolonizing and all of and all of that yeah um well yeah it started with my leaving miami and i had started so i was raised roman catholic um and so a lot of my book kind of touches on roman catholic themes and just things that i was raised with um, and then I switched over to Protestantism in my early 20s. You know, I, I just went to this conference, you know, the whole evangelical thing, went to the conference and, oh, my gosh, you know, Jesus and all these things. And so I sort of switched over to to a Protestant expression of faith. Um, and I decided to go to seminary. You know, I sort of just fell in love with it in the moment. And it was new and it was exciting. And I was, you know, a young, angsty 20-year-old. And I thought, wow, this is so cool and different. Um, so I, I decided to go to seminary and that's when I moved to, um, you know, Southern Louisiana, I moved into like a very white, um, you know, white evangelical Southern Baptist, you know, um, area. I, I didn't know I had no framework for what, 
white evangelicalism was. I had never been a part of it. Um, I didn't know who Southern Baptists were. And now I was suddenly a Southern Baptist and I had no idea what that meant. Um, And literally like a a year in, not even, I mean, my first week there, I was like, whoa, what is this? What, you know, where am I? Because it was a culture shock, you know? Um, And yeah, coming from being, being raised by a single mother and a single grandmother, you know, in a big Cuban city and, it was just very different, um, you know, and of course, every learning, every like everything I was I was taught about God just didn't fit my framework, didn't fit, you know, my culture. I didn't ha- had no, you know, so many of my professors were from like rural, you know, areas, which is great, which is fine. But that was sort of like it, you know, you could only understand God if you were from this or this framework. And there was I didn't fit in that, you know. Yeah. That's when I began asking a lot of questions. And on top of that, you know, being a woman, um, being raised by women, you know, very matriarchal culture and, and very matriarchal household, you know, like I said, single grandma, single mom. And all of a sudden I'm in this this space where I'm taught, well, I have to submit and I can't teach and I can't do these things. And that wasn't how I was raised either. So it was very bizarre for me. So I just began asking a lot of questions and thankfully I, you know, um, was introduced to white evangelicalism as an adult. So it was a little different. I feel like, you know, many who grew up in it, that's all, you know, whereas I was able to kind of, wait a minute, this feels off. You know, I say I had a little bit of an advantage in that way, I guess you can say. Um, But yeah, so I just, you know, that's sort of where the journey began where I said, no, this is, you know, there's something's off here and just experiencing a lot of, um, sexism and and a lot of you know racism as far as uh, ethno racism you know like I would say something you know obviously my I have light skin tone and I would say stuff like yeah you know something I'm white and people would say well you're not white meaning like I don't come from my, you're not from my culture you're not me you know like I'm clearly you're clearly Cuban you're not you know um, and so just experiencing things like that and just uh, just a cultural differences. And um, yeah, so that's sort of where my journey um, began. And I, I quickly decided, you know, this is this doesn't fit for me. Um, And of course, you know, I began researching and reading and and I began trying to understand the history of my island. I began when it came to Christianity, like understanding the history of colonization and, you know, white supremacy within Christianity and all these things. Um, Because again, I had no framework for that, you know, being raised Cuban, Roman Catholic was very common, and it was very popular Catholicism. So, you know, it was a lot of Catholicism in the home, you know, which is also mixed with a lot of other um, Cuban religious cultural stuff, you know. Um, So yeah, so I think um, after being there for a little bit, I said, I got to get out of here. So I moved to the West coast, uh, to, to, you know, start, finish my program somewhere else. Um, yeah. And just began reading from different people and, and learning more about, you know, who I am and, and what that means as far as, you know, everything really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, I suppose that, and that changes everything when you start to do that work, doesn't it? And, um, right. Yeah. I mean, how did it change in terms of your, your spiritual journey in terms of, you know, your, your kind of, I suppose where your faith went and what, yeah. that looked, what, that, what that looked like and how that had to change. Yeah. Um, so that's actually a big part of what Awalita, uh faith, the book is, is, is that journey of 
you know, sort of reclaiming, um, like I said, my popular Catholicism, my popular Catholic roots, you know, because I here, here I am, I growing up in in the church with my grandmother and, and watching her sing on the choir and all these things. And then all of a sudden, I get to, you know, this seminary, this white Southern Baptist, white evangelical Southern Baptist seminary. And I'm, I'm, you know, supposed to believe that she's not saved anymore because she's Roman Catholic, right? And she's not white evangelical, you know, and because um, the community from which I come from, their expressions of faith were very different than what I was being taught, you know, in the dominant culture. Um, in, in the book, I mentioned a story of a woman who helped raise me and she was just, you know, a poor brown woman. Um, I loved going to her house. She was so funny. And, and she, you know, she would take care of me when my grandma and my mom couldn't. And I just have these memories of, you know, her, she was taken advantage of by her, um, she would clean homes for a living and she was taken advantage by one of the owners. She got pregnant. Her son came out as gay in the 1980s in Miami, which is a very machismo culture. And so life was very hard for her, but she had a very strong faith, but she didn't feel safe at church. So she had an altar in her home and we would sit there and we would pray the rosary and we would, you know, um, just worship in front of this altar. Now, you know, in white evangelical world, that was not, you know, Christian, or that was not legitimate, or that was not, you know, I was taught that I was taught to distrust those, those memories, you know, um, because faith had to look a certain way, and it had to be a certain thing. And, you know, um, so yeah, so part of my spiritual journey to answer your question is just a reclaiming of those moments, a reclaiming of the sacredness of, my grandmother's faith and the women that raised me, the people that raised me is, um, you know, kind of looking back and saying, wait a minute. No, you know, those moments were holy, right? Um, even moments like my grandmother was not like a biblical exegesis person, you know, <laughs> like she, she was just trying to survive. You know, she went to church regularly. She loved Jesus, but she also like had to raise kids and grandkids by herself. She was a widow uh, and so I investigate her life and her, and I, I sort of look at it from an embodied theological sense. And so, um, for example, she sewed for a living and that was like her love. I mean, she's, she's almost, you know, she's 93 right now, has dementia, you know, she's in her last few years and mm. she still talks about sewing all the time. And just, that was a passion of hers. And, um, you know, I, I sort of look at that and I say, you know, what if that was her doing theology? You know, um, she didn't lead a Bible study because she didn't have the time, but she sewed for all the women in the community. And it actually, if you think about it, that's biblical, right? Like Tabitha in the book of Acts, she's the one who she dies and they call on Peter to resurrect her. Mm -hmm. And when comes to resurrect her all the women of the of all the widows in the community are by her bedside holding the tunics she made and they're saying look 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 like look what she did for me and tabitha is one of the only women specifically called a disciple in the new testament um, and we sort of overlook this fact i mean we don't get a lot of information about tabitha but we do know that she sewed right that's what we know about her yeah. and i'm just like but that's, she, she did something like there was a reason why that's the only thing we know about her. You know, that's how she theologized. That's what made her a disciple, her sewing, the way she used her body and her hands to serve the women in her community to, to, uh, you know, to serve and love God through her hands, through embodied theology. 
and yeah, and so I sort of look at my grandmother's life through that lens and I say, my grandmother did the same thing, you know? Um, so what if our sewing is a way that we express or the, a way that we live out our theology? And so, yeah, so I just investigate. I sort of look back and I reclaim those moments in my childhood when I say, no, wait a minute, that was holy. That was God uh, there. Yeah. Yeah, I always love how we can see see the divine almost in everything. Right. Um, if we look for it, right? Uh, and anything can connect us with that. Anything that brings us joy. Um, right. Anything that has beauty and creativity and imagination exactly. attached to it can be divine, like the sewing. Um, right. My mum used to sew. Oh, um, that's mother, she, she used to make clothes for... Well, for me and my sister when we were kids. Um, She's an Awalita yeah. theologian. <laughs> yes, from, from, from Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. My, my, grand, my grandmother is Scottish. Um, oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually I, went, um, I went back to the village my mother grew up in, in Scotland about 18 months ago, and it was um, kind of like a pilgrimage in many ways. Like, I've got wow. lots of family there. It was... Um, yeah. My mother's ashes are scattered on a beach there. So, okay, wow. Yes, that's yeah. kind of a. I guess you're right in terms of the um, abuleta, um, mm-hmm. kind of homecoming, right? To our faith or whatever, to our to our journey, to like where we come from, being important, right? And I actually talk. I, I love that you mentioned that you went there physically. Um, because I talk a lot about in my book about, you know, land and, and our connection to place um, and how that just speaks so much to who we are. Um, you know, like I have this this deep connection to Cuba and I've never lived there, you know, but there's just something that it's in my DNA. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, just being able to go back and visit, you know, the place that your hair, you know, that your family is from, that the women in your family are from. I mean, that that I think speaks to, you know, it does, it does more than just, Oh, I'm here. But I think it does like, it's a soul yeah. thing. you know. Yeah. I remember, I remember very vividly and feeling like I belonged there. Like, yes, you know, it was yes. Uh, something like it was, yeah. Like a supernatural belonging um, yeah. to that place. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like my grandparents, I, I got told a story when I was there that my grandparents went on, went on a walk on this hill that overlooks the sea, and that's where my grand grandfather proposed to my grandmother. Wow! And I didn't know that before, and stuff. Yeah. And like, Whoa! That's why they went walking when they were courting, and all this, you know. And it's there's beautiful. other members who were buried there in that village, and it's like, wow, gosh, there's you know, there's visitors, you know, it, it's it all matters, and oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah, that's good. Um, I did say to people actually, a joke told was like, you know, when I retire, I wouldn't mind living there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be against that at all. It's quite cold, but it's uh, but it's very, <laughs> but it's very beautiful. Oh well, yeah, yeah. I think that there's there's so much there. Um, you know, I that is a theme that I visit a lot. It's just this, yeah, this. I mean, our, so I was doing a lot of research um, about this idea or this topic and, and something, you know, our, our ancestors, you know, from, you know, our, our sort of indigenous ancestors or, or however you want to call that 
um, you know, there it wasn't very common for people to move around a lot, you know, like where you were from, like that's that was your place. Like you knew the land, you knew the climate, you knew the animals, you knew the everything. Like that was part of who you were, you know. And nowadays we're just so used to moving and we don't realize like what a disruption that does every time we move because you know we have we do have a connection to specific places i know you know growing up in miami it's a very caribbean climate and and you know there's just so many things about it that are very similar to cuba and and i'm just like you know when i'm there i land you know I, i'll land i fly or whatever and i land and I'll, the doors will open and I feel the humidity and it'll be like a wet blanket on me. And I'm just like, ah, I'm home, you know? And, and yeah, there, there's just something about um, how we're so disconnected as people to place, you know, just all of us because we have the luxury, I guess you can say, to move around and pick up and go. But that's not what our ancestors were used to, you know? Um, so yeah, so I think that it's, there is some, something deep and something spiritual about where you come from and yeah, and being there and feeling that, like you said, a deep sense of belonging. Yeah. And, and story, you know, right. that, like, you know, like, I, like I was saying, I heard so many stories when I was there, right. but yeah. my uncle, my mother, my mother's brother still lives there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he retired there. Um, and yeah, I just heard loads of stories when I was there, and you know, it's just it's um it's powerful. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very powerful because it because it it kind of is about this is who I am. This is part of who I am. Right, right. Yeah, it makes right. up my identity, my DNA. You know, like, yeah, and it answers a lot of questions. I think too. You know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, how did? How did finding out more about your ancestors kind of help your sense of identity and and belonging, I guess, as well? Yeah, yeah, that's a very, very good question. So um, I think for me, it started, as I mentioned, when I started doing, um, so in the second seminary that I was at, I was in a class and it was a, and this was actually like a very um, specific and, you know, whatever moment in this journey, particularly in writing this book, um, I, I was in the second seminary, we, you know, I was in a women in church history class, and we had to write a paper on women in the church, you know, in, in church history. And of course, you know, all the women that we were learning about, they were mostly were just European or white women, you know, that had come over, you know, whether from the Puritans or whatever, you know, they were just a uh, well, white European women. And they were huge in history. I mean, I was so thankful to learn about so many of these women. Um, but then I started wondering, I'm like, well, what about Cuban women? Like, what is, you know, what do I have to learn about Cuban women in church history? Um, because, you know, that, of course, that's not something that it, that's not talked about or focused on uh, in, a, in a class like that. So that's what I decided to write my paper on. Um, and it turned out to be just a, a lot harder. And by hard, I mean, it, you know, there's a line in my book that I talk about, you know, there's a, there's a point in our lives when we all become our own archaeologists and we sort of start, you know, digging up the bones from the grave and we start kind of, yeah, looking backwards and realizing like whether it's, um, you know, our ancestors, uh, whether it's through the, the, the horrible history of colonization or whether it's, you know, whatever it is. And we kind of start digging that up. And that's what happened to me. I was excited to learn about Cuban women. And then I went all the way back to 1492 when Columbus landed in the island of Cuba. They called it Cubanac or Cubananac. Um, and when when Columbus landed there and 
um, I started looking through, you can read some of his early diaries and, you know, he was just talking about how the women, you know, how they were naked and how they went about naked. And, and it's, you know, the sort of the, the dehumanization of women began then, you know, women were raped and they were taken to be, um, you know, forcibly as wives and slaves. And so all these things, you know, that I'm reading about and it became very personal for me. I thought, wait a minute, these are my ancestors. Like this is the history of, you know, Christianity as I know it on my island. You know, it was Mm. women are raped and children are ripped from their families and men are, you know, murdered. And, and it was just very jarring for me. And I thought, um, well, now what, (laughs) right? Like, how do I, you know, this is the the Jesus that was introduced um, in in Cuba, you know. Um, so yeah, so that was very hard for me in, you know, kind of starting there. But, you know, kind of tracing throughout the centuries and seeing how, um, as I mentioned earlier, women were involved in so many movements. Um, and particularly Christian women, you know, because yes, um, Catholicism obviously ended up becoming the dominant religion because of colonization. Um, but there were so many little offshoots of that. And there were, you know, mix, there was a lot of mixed um, Catholicism with African, um, obviously because of the slave trade. And so there was like African religion mixed with Catholicism. And, and there was a lot of, uh, again, marginalized peoples would, would sort of blend their own thing. And they still had this beautiful faith in Jesus and this beautiful, you know, um, but yeah, they were finding ways to survive um, in the context that they were in. And um, and yeah, so I was able to, to kind of trace throughout the centuries of just women who have um, resisted and persisted and women who have um, just done incredible things to fight for their, you know, for their just survival, right? I keep saying survival, but that is a big theme in my book is just survival, um, you know, right before Castro, there was a, a, a right wing dictator uh, backed by the U.S. And he um, actually the movement that got him out of there was literally it was an underground movement basically led by women, you know, and it was women that would use the church to as a safe space. And they would, you know, use the church to do protester phone chains and to hide, you know, spies and do all these things. And so I'm learning about all these incredible women in my ancestry and in my history. And I'm thinking, and I'm realizing like, wow, you know, we have, we have made it this far, um, you know, through the, the horrors of, of uh, empires and dictators and colonizers and, you know, all of that. So yeah, it helped, um, like, like I mentioned before, to answer a lot of questions. It also gave me a lot of strength, um, helped me, you know, draw from the strength of my ancestors um, and to, you know, kind of made me realize that no matter what dominant culture might say about us, like we've been, we've been doing the thing, you know, for centuries. Um, and I, and like I said, I can draw from that strength and that just gave me a better sense of who I am, who I come from, the power that I have. Um, yeah. And the embodied theology that lives in me. And so in, in Abuelita Faith, I argue that all that stuff is embodied theology, right? Protest and all of that. So yeah yeah wow that's amazing it's um, amazing to hear yeah and you're right about embodied theology yeah we carry we carry the grief and the trauma and not just right. of our own not just of our own journeys but of people who came before us we carry that. right um 
very yeah. much so in our bodies. Um, and the weight of that, uh, right. like me as a white person, as a white man from, you know, Great Britain, he basically colonized everybody and <laughs> yeah, the British Empire. I kind of, my ancestors are somehow probably involved in that. I don't know how. They may not have physically gone over, over to, right. But, right. They, but they were part of a culture that did that. Um, right. And so we as a country and me have to process that somehow and right. take responsibility for that somehow. And yeah. Um, you know, reparations and, you know, and apologies and things like that. You know, it's these things matter because they're part of our history, whether we chose them or not. And, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we, we may now kind of, obviously we are bored of that now and we disown all of that and we say, you know, we don't agree with that and it was wrong. Um, but um, right. we acknowledge that there were, there were pretty people that were related to us who were part of that at some point. Uh, yeah, you do anyway, um, and um, because um, that's that's really really important. Right, right, yeah. No, we carry all of that. I mean, I have ancestors from Spain as well, you know, because um, the Spaniards, you know, came over, and we have, you know, I have African and Spanish, and um, obviously indigenous ancestry, and so yeah, I wrestle with all of that too. You know, I have colonized and colonizer blood within me, and so all of that is part of it, right? We are messy individuals. And yeah, and, and, you know, we carry a lot of trauma in our bodies and a lot of um, generational grief in our bodies. And, um, but a lot of also, you know, resilience um, in different ways, you know, um, whether that's we're breaking generational curses, or we're Yeah, like you said, you know, making reparations um, for the first time in our, you know, history of or in our lineage. I mean, these are very heavy and important things that we carry in our bodies. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how have you learned how to process and name that grief that you carry um, and kind of come to terms with it and manage and live with it almost um, in a healthy way? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had so much more time to think about it because it's so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's good. I think, um, like I mentioned a little bit before, I think a part of it has to do with um, a lot of just reclaiming of what has been, you know, told to me or whatever as wrong or un whatever, you know, um, has been reclaiming, but also, you know, it's been, I still deal with a lot of grief um, because a lot of my family um, is very colonized. You know, they mm -hmm. haven't done this work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. They yeah. are, you know, they're Latinos and many of them hold anti-black views. And um, because they've bought into dominant culture, they've bought into us american way of being and and of of seeing the world um as i was mentioning earlier the whole thing the complicated you know dynamic between the us and cuba um you know and uh, because it was a communist thing you know uprising and the us just loved latching onto that narrative because like i said it was like in the height of the cold war and it was you know huge anti-communist sentiment 
And so, of course, you know, there are there are Cubans that are fleeing Cuba. They're, you know, because communism is ruin, ruining their lives. Of course, we'll let you in and we'll take care of you. And we'll, you know, so a lot of Cubans that came, um, you know, the, the first wave of Cubans that came from Cuba at the height of the revolution, um, they were welcomed with open arms, you know, welcomed by the U.S. government. I mean, they received so much help and they received, you know, um, so a lot of Cubans in Miami, they don't know that it's not like that for other people groups. So they might know, but they they don't understand that maybe certain Mexican-American communities aren't received in the same way. Um, or yeah, or just other Latino groups aren't received in the same way. Um, so yeah, so like I said, they hold on to American exceptionalism, uh, exceptionalist views and, and anti-blackness and a lot of things like that. And they're also very conservative because, you know, anti-communism, uh, anything anti-socialist or, you know, they're just very conservative. So so, I, for, so to answer your question, how do I hold on to that? Or how do I process? How have I processed this grief? I think I'm still processing it because as I do this decolonizing work, it doesn't mean that the people that I'm, that I come from, you know, my, my ancestors, my immediate ancestors are also doing that work, you know? And so it's a, it's a matter of, um, yeah, accepting sort of, you know, and processing the past and realizing that, man, like the the way that my family is, the way that we are in, in the ways that I wish I could change are due to, you know, colonization, are due to so many things. Um, and but we just sort of sit in that messy middle where I'm trying to walk them through. I'm trying to help them, you know, decolonize I'm trying to um, lead them. And I talk a lot about this in my book about how, um, you know, and I, I have very different views from a lot of people in my community. And so there is a lot of, you know, holding a lot of tensions mm, and a yeah. lot of, you know, just, just trying to process my past and their past and also make them realize that, hey, you know, um, this like America, the US, US America doesn't care about you, you know. You are, you know, you might have power and privilege in Miami, but you leave Miami and no one cares about you. You know what I mean? You're going to be just another, you know, quote unquote, just another Latino person, you know? Um, so anyway, yeah. So I think it is for me, it's a constant processing because of the reality yeah. of, you know, because of the lure of whiteness or the lure of dominant culture. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. No, that's a great answer. Yeah, it's. Because processing and naming grief is an ongoing process. It's a right it's not a one-off thing. It's something we have it's to messy. Yeah, yeah, and it's a lifelong thing. You know, there's always there's layers to it, and we're always processing new stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So your answer makes total sense. Um, so, so just to kind of come as we come to the end, like what what is your biggest what's your biggest hope for the book? What's your hope that what, the message that people you that you'd like people to get from the book? Yeah. Um, well, I, I have a, a lot of things. Um, I, for one, talking about the Bible, I, I mentioned the Bible earlier. I want folks to, to see scripture through a new lens and to have like a, a new, you know, perspective on the Bible. That's something that I always try and, you know, yeah. push for. Um, because I, like I always say, the Bible's not going anywhere, you know, People are going to keep using it and abusing it. Um, and, and yeah, if I can just do a little, you know, 
my own little part in, you know, adding to the voices of people that are trying to liberate um, and trying to bring freedom from the same book that has done the opposite, right? The, the Bible has done the opposite for many people than liberate. Um, then, yeah, I would, you know, that's something that I really hope that, that people can see um, characters in scripture, but not just in scripture, characters in their own life. You know, one of the central questions I ask in Awalita Faith is, you know, what if, um, what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? And so I want folks to, um, to consider, you know, poor people, to consider marginalized people, to consider um, people without status, you know, whatever you want to call it, colonized people, to consider them genuine sources of theology. You know, in our culture, we, we revere certain people, whether because of their education or whatever. Um, but, but yeah, I want, I want us to be able, I want people who read it to be able to, to look around and see, you know, the grandmother theologians and, and realize that they're genuine theologians. And we have the most to learn from folks who we don't expect to learn anything from. Right. Um, and that doesn't only have to be poor people of color, which obviously that's what I'm focusing on, but I think also children and, and those who, um, yeah, may not be taken seriously in society or those who, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, but that, the, 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 excuse me, the divine works, um, through unexpected people and in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. Um, and yeah, and that can hopefully liberate folks, you know, to experience God in a new way or just experience God, period, <laughs> you know, so yeah. Mm, absolutely. Great. Well, um, so the book's out in uh, August. Um, August here, but you said over there it's out in September. Yeah, in the UK it's out in September. Uh, you can pre-order it wherever you can get books. Um, and where can people find you online? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram um, at, you know, at cat underscore Armas, A-R-M-A-S. Also my website, catarmas.com. Uh, and I do have a podcast as well. And I just focus on women, um, church leadership and theology, women of color. And so that's called The Protagonistas. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, I highly recommend all of those things to everybody. Um, and thanks for coming on the show, Kat. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for chatting with me. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thanks for listening, everyone.